Um, we're going to be kind of jumping around today, but if you uh, have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to Ephesians chapter 1. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll read from verses 3 to 14. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be through the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when I was in school, I took my grades very seriously. One might say far too seriously. And uh, so I took them so seriously. I did well in, in high school. I was a salutatorian. Um, and then I get to college, and first several classes I did really well in. And the thing was, I was drived, driven by this fear of failure. And it didn't matter that I had done well in high school. It didn't matter that I had done well in the first several classes in, in college. Every time I would take a class, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, all right, this is the one that I fail. This is the one where I show that I can't handle the work. Not the best way to think about things. I have some issues. But I, you know, have that mindset, and I go into this class. I'm take, taking a developmental psychology class, and so it comes to the first test. And so for the first test, I study, you know, quite a bit, and I get to the test, and it was a pretty hard test. And so afterwards, I'm worried, like, how did I do on this test? And so finally, the teacher posts the grades, and she posted it by the student number online. So I go, and I look at my student number, and I look at the grade, and I got a 63. And it was one of the lowest grades in the class. And so me, you know, it, it was devastating to me. I was, like, depressed that whole week. And I'm thinking, well, if I studied this hard and I did this poorly, how am I going to do well on the next test? I mean, I knew some other students who didn't study at all, and they had done better than me. So I'm thinking, how am I going to fix this? So I emailed the teacher, and I said, well, I'm not used to getting grades like this. I'm not used to failing tests. Can I come there, and maybe we could talk about doing some extra credit or something, raise my score a little bit. So she said, oh, yeah, you didn't do very well at all. Maybe you should come and talk to me. So I go to her office hours, you know, and I going there kind of with my head down, kind of disappointed about all that had happened. I go and sit down, and she says, what is, what's your name again? I tell her my name. She's like, what's your student number? I told her my student number. She's like, well, it's interesting. When I pulled up your student number, a picture of a lady came up. 
And she went on to say that she had switched my grade with someone else's. And I had actually gotten a 93, which was one of the highest grades in the class, and some other poor person had gotten the 63. I guess I was happier to be me than that other person who thought that they did well. But after that, I walked out and I had my head held high, and I felt like I was on the top of the world. But what changed? Nothing changed. I mean, nothing changed about me. I was the same student I always was. The answers that I had written down on the test were the same answers. Nothing had changed except for my beliefs. I went in believing, having this false belief that I was a really poor student, that I couldn't handle the work. And I left having a different feeling. False beliefs have a power to impact us in a very negative way. In 1998, there was a man by the name of Michael Critton, and he wrote, he's known for his uh, book, the Jurassic Park book. And uh, he wanted to write this book about eco-terrorism. So he decided he was going to study some of the most famous ecological disasters in history. And one of the ones he decided he was going to study was Chernobyl. Now, I don't know a ton about Chernobyl, but when I you know, hear Chernobyl, I think of this catastrophic, terrible, world-reaching disaster that killed thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And that's what many people think. And that's what Critton thought. But then he started to do some research and he found that what he had thought he knew about Chernobyl was different. He gave a speech in 2005 and he shared a little bit about what he discovered. He says, Chernobyl was a tragic event, but nothing remotely close to the global catastrophe I imagined. He said about 50 people had died in Chernobyl, roughly the number of Americans that die every day in traffic accidents. He says, I don't mean to be gruesome, but it was a setback for me. You can't write a novel about a global disaster in which only 50 people die. What I had been led to believe about Chernobyl was not merely wrong, it was astonishingly wrong. The initial reports in 1986 claimed 2,000 dead and an unknown number of future deaths and deformities occurring in a wide swath extending from Sweden to the Black Sea. As the years passed, the size of the disaster increased. By 2000, the BBC and New York Times estimated 15 to 30,000 deaths, and so on. He says now to report that 15 to 30,000 people have died when the actual number is 56 represents a big error. He says, but of course you think we're talking about radiation. What about long-term consequences? He says, unfortunately, here the media reports are even less accurate. There were estimates that as high as 3.5 million or 500,000 deaths when the actual number of delayed deaths is less than 4,000. He says that's the number of Americans who die of adverse drug reactions every six weeks. Again, a huge error. But most troubling of all, according to the UN report in 2005, is that the largest public health problem created by the accident is the damaging psychological impact due to a lack of accurate information manifesting as negative self-assessments of health, belief, and a shortened life expectancy, lack of initiative, and dependency on assistance from the state. In other words, the greatest damage to the people of Chernobyl was caused by bad information. These people were blighted by radiation so much, were not blighted by radiation so much as by terrifying false information. We ought to ponder for a minute exactly what that implies. We demand strict controls on radiation because it's such a health hazard, but Chernobyl suggests that false information can be a health hazard as damaging as radiation. I'm not saying that radiation is not a threat. I'm not saying Chernobyl was not genuinely a serious event. But thousands of Ukrainians who didn't die were made invalids out of fear. 
They were told to be afraid. They were told they were going to die when they weren't. They were told their children would be deformed when they weren't. They were told they couldn't have children when they could. They were authoritatively promised a future of cancer, deformities, pain, and decay. It's no wonder they responded as they did. False beliefs, false information transformed their life in a profoundly negative way. And I think the same thing can happen for us spiritually. When we have false beliefs, when we're holding on to false information, it can cause us to have fear and anxiety. It can lead us to sin. It can lead us to despair. It can lead us to kind of a lack of initiative and kind of a purposelessness. And so I'd like to talk about three lies that we sometimes believe. Three lies that Satan wants us to buy into. And why I wanted to talk about them at uh, Christmas specifically is because I think if we free ourselves from these lies, if God's truth frees us from these lies, I think no matter what we're experiencing in our life, whether it's good or bad, we can have a peace and contentment as we experience the Christmas season. So three lies. The first lie is you are not enough. It's the first lie. And I think that this is one that's hard to shake because it's partially true. Now, we know, in Christ, we know that apart from Christ, we are not enough. We know that we're all broken. We're all sinners. We've all short, fallen short of the glory of God. That's, a, that's the truth of God's word, that we all are broken. But there's also a second reality for those who are believers in Christ, and that's that we have been made new creations. We have a new identity. Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther uh, said that we are simul ustis at peccador in Latin, that we're both sinner and saint at the same time. And so we live in these two realities. Yes, we are broken, but also we've been changed, we've been redeemed, we've been made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That passage talks about what theologians call the great exchange or double imputation is the theological term that's used, and that is basically our sin is given to Christ. It's credited to Christ. He takes our sin upon himself, takes our punishment, and in return we as believers receive the gift of his righteousness so that God sees us as he sees Christ with the perfect love of Christ, uh, uh, that God has for Christ. But here's where I think we fall into trouble. I think we fall into trouble where we see God's acceptance of us as only a future reality that, rather than a present reality. And sometimes we think to ourselves, well, once I clean up my life, once I fix this in my life, once I fix that in my life, then God will accept me. And we don't want to come to Christ. We don't want to get too close because we feel like we got to fix ourselves up before we come close. When I'm more consistent reading God's word, when I'm more consistent praying and loving my spouse, then I can be accepted. Then I can experience a relationship with him. Now, does God want us to grow? 
course. He requires that we grow. But he doesn't want us, our lack of growth to keep us from him. Because he's the source of our growth. He's the source of our change. And I think sometimes what we do is it's like saying, I can't go to the doctor because I'm sick. And I think that's what we do sometimes in our relationship with God. It's like, I'm broken. I have this sinfulness. And surely God won't accept me. It's like the prodigal son. He goes out and wastes all of his father's possessions. And what is he, you know, eventually he comes to his senses and comes home. But he probably struggled with that for a while, thinking to himself, I've done this great injustice to my father. Surely I can't be a son again. And the best I can hope for is to be a servant. And so that's what he does. He comes back home and asks his father, can I be your servant? And, of course, the father's not going to have any of that. But there's this mindset where our God's acceptance of us is only a future reality, and that keeps us from coming to God because we feel like God isn't going to accept us where we're at. The radical truth of the gospel is that if you're in Christ, you are enough today. If you're in Christ, because of the declaration of God, you're enough. You're accepted. You're loved. You're redeemed. You can come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, Christ is going to transform us. He's not going to allow us to stay in those patterns of sin. But our acceptance by God is not based upon our performance. It's not based upon how we're doing today, how we're going to do tomorrow. It's based upon the declaration of Christ over us. And he died and rose again on our behalf and gives us the gift of his righteousness. I think this longing to be accepted, to feel like we're enough, is something that people in our culture are longing for. Uh, you've probably heard people say or seen on social media or seen you know, signs on people's wall. It's like, you are enough. You're beautiful. Uh, you have it all together. You, you're, you're strong. Now, you have those kind of things, and, and from a worldly perspective, if that's all that it is, it's, it's a cliche because we know in our heart of hearts we're not enough. We're not strong. We're not beautiful deep down. There was a survey that was done not too long ago of 2,000 millennials, and it revealed some troubling statistics about how young adults see themselves. 80% of those surveyed believe that they're not good enough in virtually all areas of their life. Further, 75% of the survey's respondents admit that they constantly feel overwhelmed by pressure to succeed in their careers, to find meaningful romantic relationships, uh, to meet other Expect, others' expectations and to maintain a presence on social media. In all, 80% of respondents uh, say these worries have negatively impacted their sleep and admit their, their overall mental health has suffered. We all know we're not enough. We all know that we're not beautiful inside. We all know that we're broken. But praise the Lord for his gospel. Praise the Lord that he's made us into new creation. Praise the Lord that we can rejoice in the fact that we're accepted, loved, and righteous in his sight because of the work of Christ on our behalf. We don't have to wonder where we measure up. We don't have to strive for the Father's love. Yes, we want to please him because of what he's done for us. Yes, we want to grow. Yes, we want to give up our sin. But it's not so we can earn God's favor. It's because we already have it. Because God has declared it over us in Christ. Theologian uh, Miroslav Wolf commenting on the way the gospel confronts even the people in the lowest stratas of society, says this. He says, around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes. 
on TV screens in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You're a failure and you know that you'll continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells that you that you're not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count. Even more than that, you're loved unconditionally and infinitely irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. What incredible grace that is. What incredible grace it is. What incredible truth that we are enough in Christ. We put our faith in him. We are enough. We are righteous, accepted, and loved by him right now. Second lie we often believe is that you don't have enough. You don't have enough. Now, it's understandable, you know, when people are poor and maybe you have trouble paying the bills, trouble paying your rent, trouble paying the car payment. I mean, it's understandable that we would feel like we don't have enough in, in those situations. But I think this lie permeates our society, whether we have a lot or whether we have a little. It's surprising to me to learn that uh, there was a study that was done um, that was in the American Journal of Psychology several years ago. And they discovered that people who have more money are more likely to steal than people who have less money. Uh, in that particular study, they found that people who made uh, $70,000 a year were 30% more likely to steal than people who made $20,000 a year. It's not about how much we have or how much we don't have. It's this feeling that our culture tells us that what you have is not enough. And, and that's why you see even people who seem to have everything that you could ever imagine or want feel like they need more. Uh, remember a few years ago there was the college admission scandal uh, that kind of rocked academia where uh, there were these rich and powerful people who were kind of uh, paying to get their kids in, in certain schools and manipulating tests and all this stuff. One of them was actress Lori Laughlin uh, and her husband, uh, Mosimo Ganuli. And uh, they received, uh, she received uh, two months in prison, had to perform 100 hours of community service, two years supervised release. Uh, they combined had to pay $400,000. Uh, he had to do 250 hours of community service. Uh, but during this hearings, the judge who was presiding over said this to them. Judge Nathaniel Gordon said this, Here you are an admired, successful professional actor with a long-lasting marriage, two apparently resilient, healthy, resilient children, more money than you could possibly need, a beautiful home in sunny, Californ or in sunny Southern California, a fairy tale life, and yet you, you stand before me a convicted felon. And for what, he said, for the inexplicable desire to grasp even more. It's not about how little or how much we have. It's this feeling we don't have enough. And, and this feeling is kind of ingrained in our culture. And we're kind of taught this by, our, by advertising that we see from, a young, the, from the time we're young children. Uh, psychiatrist Juliet Shore, author of the book Born to Buy, The Commercialized Child and the New Consumer Culture, has discovered that involvement with consumer culture leads children into more conflict with their parents and can even lead to anxiety, illness, and depression in some children. She sums up the message that commercialized culture uh, communicates to our children. He said they're more likely to have poor self-esteem, which is not a surprise because a lot of messages consumer culture sends them are that you're nobody if you don't have the right tennis shoes or you're not drinking the right soft drink. 
Life isn't fun unless you're eating candy. Your parents are nerds. Your teachers are nerds. School is a bore. We live in a consumeristic culture, and uh, Christmas has become consumerized, commercialized. And uh, we have this feeling that we're, we're told that what you have, doesn't matter how much it is, you need something more. And this kind of becomes ingrained inside of us. And, you know, it comes kind of to the forefront in our culture because it's so out there. But it also appeared, you know, since the beginning of human history, you look back in Adam and Eve. You know, they're putting in this, gar- put in this garden. There's all these trees. And you, you can only imagine what life was like in the Garden of Eden. You can only imagine the blessings that God had bestowed on Adam and Eve. You can only imagine what the fruit tastes like in the Garden of Eden. And they have all of these trees, and what do they say? It's not enough. There's one tree we can't eat from, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have all these, but that's not enough. We have to have this one tree. Remember uh, the Israelites when they're in the wilderness. God keeps providing for them, provides them water, provides them manna from heaven, provides them quail. They're headed to this promised land, this land of milk and honey. God has all these blessings in store for them. And what do they say? It's not enough. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to the land of slavery. Uh, later, the judges come. And uh, God is king over Israel. And what do the people say? They want a king like the other nations. It's not enough for God to be king over us. We need to have a king like, other, like the other nations. In other words, what we have is not enough. The point is not that we need to become minimalist. The point is not that it's wrong to buy, buy things. It's not wrong to buy things as long as they're within our means and we're gracious towards others. But there's a message of freedom here. There's a message of freedom here. That whatever you have right now, it's enough. Whatever you have in the cu- metaphorical cupboards, it's enough. God has provided it for you. God is going to see you through. And so we don't need to live in anxiety. We don't need to live in fear. Because what you have right now, it's enough. Might not be what we want. Might not be what we hope for. But it's enough. We have what we need now. But not only that, we have the hope and the assurance that God's going to provide what we need in the future. We serve a God who is faithful, who will never let us down. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? We're free. You have enough. God is going to provide for you each and every step of the way. doesn't matter what trials you may face. God is going to be there for you. And we can live in freedom knowing that what we have now is enough and what God will provide in the future will be enough. So that's the second lie that sometimes we believe is that we don't have enough. The third lie that we sometimes believe is that God is not enough for us. And this, again, goes back to the Garden of Eden. Look at what Satan told to Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He says it's not enough 
for God to be God, you have to be God. You have to be God. Your God is not enough for you. It's not enough to trust him to provide for you. You need to have that knowledge of good and evil. And we see throughout Israel's history, whenever they fall into trial, whenever they don't have food, they don't have water, there's an enemy approaching them, nine times out of ten what they do is they turn to another god. Remember, Moses goes up on the mountain. He doesn't come back in the time they think he's going to come back. And what do they do? They build a golden calf. They turn to another idol, another god. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. And so often, if we have this belief that God is not enough for us, that God is not going to be there for us, we turn to another God to satisfy us. And the problem with that is there aren't any other gods that will satisfy us. Any other God or idol that we follow after will leave us empty. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 13 says this, As a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So Jeremiah says, God's people, they've left the fountain of living water, and they've turned to wells that are dry. You ever been outside? Imagine you're outside and it's summertime uh, and it's real hot out. Maybe you're exercising. Maybe you're doing some work around the yard and uh, you're, you're really working up a sweat, really hot, and you're really thirsty. And you think about this ice cold glass of lemonade that you have in the refrigerator. And every moment that passes by, you can almost taste that glass of lemonade that's in the refrigerator. Finally, you get done. And you go inside, you clean up, and then you open up that refrigerator, and you realize someone has taken it. Someone has drinking that glass of lemonade. I think that's what it's like to follow after a false god. It's like we go to the refrigerator, we're really thirsty, we really need to be satisfied, we open it up, and there's nothing there. And of course, when we do that, when we forsake the fount of living water, of course we're going to be depressed. Of course we're going to lack joy in our life, because... A relationship with God is the only thing that can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And so when we turn to other gods, of course we're going to lack joy and purpose in our life. So those are three lies that we believe. Believe we're not enough. We believe that we don't have enough. Sometimes we believe that God is not enough. And the truth we can encounter that with is if we're in Christ today, we're enough. If you're in Christ today, you have enough. If you're in Christ, your God is enough. No matter what we're experiencing in this life, God is enough. He's provided everything that we need. And if we allow this truth to permeate our hearts, it can transform us and allow us to live lives of joy and contentment. There's an old story. It's called the story of the stonecutter. And uh, it goes something like this. It says, once upon a time there was a stonecutter. He lived all alone, and though he'd acquired great skills, he was very poor. He lived in a tiny bamboo hut and wore tattered clothing. One day, as the stonecutter worked with his hammer and chisel upon a huge stone, he heard a crowd gathering around the streets. By their shouts, they could, he could tell that a king was approaching to visit his humble village. Joining in the procession, he followed after the 
Gazing at the king, dressed in marvelous silk, he was greeted by his subjects. And he thought to himself, oh, how I wish I had the power and glory of, of a king. He thought he has soldiers at his commands. There's no one more powerful than he. His cry was heard from the heavens, and immediately he became a king. This humble stonecutter was transformed into a king. He found himself riding a great horse, waving at the crowds of people who had flocked to see him. This is power, he thought. But as the summer progressed, the king watched the effects of the heat upon his people. Men and animals became weary. The plants withered under the rays of the sun. As he looked at the sky, the new king realized that the sun was more powerful than any earthly ruler. He thought to himself, how I wish, that the, how I, wish I were like the sun. Immediately his wish was granted. The stonecutter relished his new role as the sun. He gloried in the power he felt as he surveyed the kingdoms below. He sent his bright rays to the earth. He watched kings and princes hide under their parasols. He watched as powerful warriors became weak under his gaze. Even the crops in the field were under his command. But then one day a tiny little cloud came and moved over the land, shielding the earth from the sun's bright rays. Seeing here, there was something more powerful than the sun. And he thought to himself, I very much want to be a cloud. Again, his wish was granted. Now he blocked the sun's rays and felt very important. He gathered all his strength, become a gigantic cloud, began to pour down rain on the earth. Rivers formed where trees, where there were none, and water flooded the streets of the city and the farmland. Everything, trees, animals, people, seemed to be awed by his power. Only the massive rocks were unswayed. He thought to himself, there is nothing as powerful as a rock. How I wish I were a huge stone, and then nothing could move me or affect me. His wish was granted. As a stone, he remained motionless and power, powerful, unmoved by the sun, the wind, or rain. He felt exempt from all the forces that shaped the existence of those around him. Then one day, a man approached carrying a bag. When he stopped, he pulled out a chisel and a hammer and began to chip away at the rock. Realizing that the man with the tools was more powerful than any rock, he cried out, Oh, I want to be a stonecutter. Once again, the heavens heard his cry, and he became a stonecutter once again. He lived in a bamboo hut and made his living with hammer and chisel, but this time he was content. For those of us who are believers in Christ, we have everything that we need. You're enough in Christ. Because of his work on the cross, he's declared us righteous, accepted, loved in his sight. You have enough. He provides, provides for us every step of the way. When we need it, he'll provide us. might not be what we want, might not be what we hope for, but he'll provide us what we need. And we know our God is enough for us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And we know he's taking us somewhere. He's taking us to a heavenly home where we'll spend forever with him in a perfect place of joy. The question is not if these things are true. The question is, do we believe them? Or have we bought it into lies? Do we believe the truth? And are we allowing this truth to transform us and allowing us to live lives of contentment and joy? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. For those of us who are believers in Christ, you've declared us righteous in your sight, that we are enough. We don't have to strive to earn your favor or others' approval. That where we are right now, it's enough. And though you want us to change, though you require us to be transformed, you accept us where we're at. 
We thank you that you provide for us. We thank you that you promised us that you'll be with us. We thank you that you promised us that we don't have to worry about the future because you'll provide for us every step of the way. And most of all, Lord, we thank you that you're a God who can be trusted. You'll never let us down. You'll never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we love you. Help us to live in that truth. Help it to transform us. Help it to bring us joy and contentment as we enter into this Christmas season. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.